Susan Zarinsky, or Z as she's affectionately known, is the senior executive producer of the award-winning crime and justice series 48 Hours. But this powerhouse and highly respected journalist has worked in news since Watergate and is no stranger to war and conflict. In 1989, Zarinsky ran CBS News operations out of Panama during the United States invasion and was in charge of CBS News operations in Beijing during the Tiananmen Square student uprising and military crackdown. She was also on the front lines as the senior producer in Kuwait while covering the first Persian Gulf War and was part of the CBS News team and the first network to enter Kuwait just behind Allied forces. Her work and programs have earned virtually every major journalism honor, including multiple Emmy Awards, a George Foster Peabody Award, the Edward R. Murrow Award for Excellence, the Writer Guild of America Award, and the DuPont Award from Columbia University. In 2013, she was presented with the Lifetime Achievement Award by the New York Festival's International Film and Television Awards. Susan Zarinsky is a legend and a national treasure. It's such an honor to be able to sit down with her in New York and hear just some of her incredible stories. I knew I couldn't go back. Is your you just put it out there. She said you've got less than a year to just look back. even Luck deeper. is the residue of design. Nobody else was doing it, so I could not. That was the turning point. Welcome to the Bucket Podcast with Phil Kogan. Every week I talk to mavericks, disruptors, and innovators. People who ditch the excuses, swerve off the predictable road, and epitomize what it means to ticket before you kick it. It's the recorders of history that keep society going. They're the ones that tell you, do not forget what happened. This is part two of my interview with the amazing Susan Zerinsky. Susan is just 19 and working in the newsroom with Walter Cronkite. Nixon had just resigned, and Cronkite is about to tell the nation. So uh, go back to um, the summer of August in uh, 1970, and it is uh, the night that Richard Nixon has resigned. And Cronkite is doing a special at, in the CBS Washington Bureau. And I was a production secretary, uh, but pulled in to help with research. And um, I had done that a lot during the Watergate era because it was so intense and uh, I helped the researcher. And so um, I'm a script runner. And in those days, the teleprompter was a machine where you would actually type on a specific typewriter that had big type, and then you would have these, this seven-ply copy that you would snap and, and pull, and um, you, one copy would go to the top copy to the anchor, second copy would be white, that goes to the prompter, salmon went to the director, green went to the audio guy, yellow went to the producer, color-coded and it was a, you could not give the wrong color to the wrong person or your hands would be chopped off but after the show was over um, and you know it was a moment in history uh, you know Nixon was was out Gerald Ford was in and we were cleaning up and uh, Walter took the top copy of his script and he put it in the trash and I saw it in the trash and I pulled it out because it was just you know it was the whole set and he, I said, um, Walter, don't you want to take this back to New York for historic purposes? And he said, no, no, no. He said, they, they do transcripts in New York. And I said, oh, okay. So I took it out, and I walked back to my desk. And um, through fires and floods, I have held on to this script, which um, 
I probably could get an enormous amount of money on eBay for, but it is probably my most prized possession of a moment in history because it's actually, it's Cronkite's own handwriting in correcting, right? And then it's top copy, and here it says Cronkite, and CLW was Charlie West, who was his writer at the time. And to have copy like this that says, good evening, the 37th president of the United States resigned today. The 38th took office. It was an orderly succession, but with each occurrence and historic event, unparalleled in the two centuries the nation has existed. In departing, Richard Nixon spoke with intense emotion, and in arriving, so did Gerald Ford. And so this is his copy, and there's, you know, I can hear him doing this copy, and in the end, it's, it's kind of, I, I, like, I like to feel it, like, like if I was it's Helen Keller, yeah. you know, because you can feel the pen mark, like just put your finger over the pen mark. You know, it's, wow. that's his pen, oh. that's his handwriting. And, you know, it's, and, and the last two pages. And so, virtually on the eve of her bicentennial, the United States has passed through a day of historic drama, dot, dot, dot. A day many of her citizens had been awaiting with dread, a day some feared would shred the fabric of her society. But the feared has not come to pass. As Gerald Ford, as President Ford said in his acceptance speech, our long national nightmare is over. Our Constitution works. Our great republic is a government of laws and not of men. Here the people rule. Pause, it says. This is Walter Cronkite, CBS News, Washington. Good night. And that end was 35 seconds as timed out. And, I, you know, it's a beautifully written piece this was his copy and how oh Susan, I, I mean, mean it's I, so powerful to hear you it's just it's say an exciting it and see it right this was a moment in history and i think as journalists getting to be at moments of history and record them is is kind of what it's certainly not the money that keeps yeah. us here because there isn't that the money is less than if i was on wall street or a hedge fund um, but I, I felt gifted in the sense of that somebody had gifted me a life and I am grateful for every road trip, for every person I have met, for every experience, for every sleepless night. Um, I, I just, who gets to do this? Who gets to have this? Like who gets to hold Walter Cronkite's script from the night the 37th president of the United States, Richard Nixon, resigned. Uh, you know, it was funny, I, I remember that night and I, I felt kind of teary and I was a little teary. And Cronkite looked at me at a commercial and he said, don't you dare, this is exactly what should have happened. And it wasn't about being a Republican or a Democrat, it was the kind of like moment of kind of traumatic event for the country. But Cronkite was all about, this is exactly what should happen. And that was what was in this copy. The government survived. It's not a, it's not a government of men. It's a government of law. Most prized possession? Most prized possession. 
My child is probably my most prized possession, but this is a good second. Where will it go to when you're long gone, Susan? I don't know. I have, um, there's a pollster named Frank Luntz, who actually is, uh, has a, a copy of the Oval Office built in his home in California, and he wanted to borrow this for a year. And he said, I will return it. And I couldn't, let, I couldn't part with it. I think I what can't I believe you brought <laughs> it out. And I, I, I mean, know. I, I asked you to, and I'm so appreciative that you well, that you did because realizing now the significance of it, I'm not sure I would have asked you. It's in my desk in <laughs> the I, left. To the I know, but truck. that's your it's, desk. It, and no, you, I know. You it's brought it, it out here. When Cronkite died, um, CBS was prepared, but we didn't really all of a sudden somebody said hey could you do a phoner with cnn or something and i'm literally in the evening news fishbowl and talking to people and and somebody else called and they said oh we just heard you on on cnn could you come on and do this yeah and you talked about having this script do you have it and i said yes so i literally that whole weekend cronkite died i went all over town and sunday night around 10 o'clock cbs called me cbs morning news and they said could you come on CBS? I said, sure. They said, could you bring the script? I said, the Cronkite script? I said, sure. So um, I was the, it was like, uh, I was the last on my own network, but um, you realize the impact that this man had. And uh, to that point, th th there's this fantastic quote from Lyndon Johnson who said, Oh, I know. If we've lost Walter Cronkite, we've lost, we've lost the, the war, we've lost the country. This was when Cronkite went to Vietnam and he came back and they were doing a, a series of specials. And um, Cronkite, for the first time, and you know, journalists, especially in those days when there wasn't channels of opinion, um, questioned the efficacy of the war. And in such a way that uh, it, it really pulled into doubt whether we should be there and what was the purpose of it and that quote was very famous um, it was disputed at some point uh, of have it, did he really say it but the Cronkite report from that documentary and that that CBS special on Vietnam um, held no punches and it, it did question the reality of being in that war and and who was would could there be any winners in that war and that was a, a tough place to be will there be another person man or woman who will have that kind of power in their no. voice there will never be another voice that holds the country in their hands at moments of crisis there won't be a broadcaster, a journalist. Um, you know, I think that we look to our political leaders to do that, and even that is a little difficult to see at this point. You know, the world has so many factions that the purity of just being there for the country is is absent I think and and it's why I think there is so much fractured feelings among people and and not really feeling one person stands above all else and that's why Cronkite held this incredible position because he was apolitical he was agnostic and to a fault no no in that era and I think the Vietnam doc was one of the first pieces where you 
where you kind of felt his feeling of what he had seen that mm. he couldn't just give the report and let the viewer decide he he crystallized the debate and I think that's that's what set that report apart is that what's missing today chronically well I think um, today there are so few objective um, voices that the obje uh, uh, that today there's just there's far fewer objective voices and that's what's kind of missing um, is there a place you can I mean uh, can you point us to any objective yeah I mean voices? I think CBS works hard at being objective and um, it was interesting the night um, of the election that Donald Trump won in a surprising victory even surprising to himself and his own pollsters yeah. who that night predicted he would not win um, I think that um, the the voices now uh, at that night we there was a kind of shrillness the tonality of the voices was sort of shocked and a, uh, almost took on a fearful aspect because it was such a shocking people were shocked by the mm -hmm. by the victory and um, I think that we've become conscious of how you sound you know especially when it's an unusual experience to have the White House attacking the press as viciously as it is. Whether, you know, the White House has always been the enemy of the press in a funny way. Right. The press has not always been the enemy of the people. Right. Um, I can remember being a kid in the Washington control room at, during Watergate where the White House press office would call the control room to talk to somebody to complain about the story that wasn't even on the air in Washington. It was on in Baltimore at 6.30 and Washington at 7. They would be complaining about the story before it was airing in, the, you know. So um, I think that as journalists, it's so, it, it, we are human beings. We are human beings, but you have to leave your human side and just take it and report it and Which is be difficult. factual. Yes, it is. Yeah. You're, you know, I don't know. The Nixon enemies list looks more friendly these days uh, yeah. than ever before. Um, it's just so. It's uh, we're at a critical juncture of journalism, of holding on and and really knowing that the import of the objectivity and facts and truthfulness is just where you have to go. Must be challenging at times when you feel you have the information but you can't be absolutely sure and you've got to hold off until you've got absolute confirmation. Absolutely. You know, uh, I'd rather be second than, than wrong. You know, a lot of times you must get a second source to report um, information. And I remember that during Watergate. That's where I learned that rule. Um, I think the hardest part is the playing field which is not level between the White House and the press and um, it's very difficult to uh, be held up to ridicule when you know that you are reporting factual incidents facts um, historical references it, it's it, it, if you feel like you're in the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone, yep. 
and I think you just have to hold on to it and just keep moving forward and and just understand Eventually that the truth history, will prevail. history will right the ship whichever yeah. way it goes yeah Susan you've talked about how far you've traveled in your career you've been all over the the world and then perhaps the most impactful news story in American history in the last 100 years happens 30 blocks from your office? I felt like I had trained my whole life, I've said this, my whole life to cover 9-11. In what way? Because I always got on an airplane. Home was the safe place. You know, we were kind of, I don't know, we were, we were in the safety zone. It didn't happen here. It proved a vulnerability that you reported on all over the world. We're not vulnerable. We're the United States of America. It's like when I went into Russia and I'm in Moscow and I wrote back, I've seen the enemy. We should not be afraid. Right. Um, you know, it's just, it was, it was so stark. It was such a wake-up call. I think not only to journalists who felt a sense of guilt of having not, found the holes in the in the hate against this country as deep as they were and I I just I remember um, the first you know 60 minutes and 48 hours alternated each night in prime time being responsible for for broadcasting but I remember after the second night I I walked down to the to the to the site to the towers and I had press credentials, but they weren't really letting people in. And I said, oh, I, I, I lied. I said, I'm meeting Dan Rather, who's going to interview Mayor Giuliani. And so they let me through. And I, you know, I kind of just, I, I didn't really have a job down there. I just wanted to go down take and, and take it in. And when we got to do the documentary, uh, 9-11, with the French filmmakers and and James Hanlon, the firefighter partner, um, it was, I, I felt actually grateful to be able to do something that would become an important record of history Um, and Robert De Niro ended up being the host of it because he was so ingrained in in downtown and the I remember shooting the on cameras and um, the we were shooting all over the city and we were supposed to get down to ground zero at about uh, about mid, 11 o'clock midnight and there were the people were waiting for us there and we didn't really get down there till like four in the morning and everybody waited and we shot on top of 10 house which was a small firehouse that really was just adjacent to the to the twin towers and then they uh, they wanted to take bob down they they presented bob with an iron cross so this was this was in march uh, just probably at the end of February, we were shooting just days before the the documentary would air, and the um, there was that giant piece of metal that kind of yeah. formed a cross. Yeah. And they took a piece of it and they gave they made a cross for Bob and they made a cross a smaller cross for me. And I I, I have it on my desk at home. I look at it every day. But um, they wanted to take Bob down into the ground zero, and it was still a con- you know everything was still being yeah. pulled out. And they wanted me to come along on that, and I couldn't. I, I, I couldn't. I, I, I just couldn't go down there because I felt like there were the ashes of all these people. And um, I was wearing running shoes uh, that night, and I took them off, and they hang out behind my door, and I've never worn them again oh. because I felt like there were there were ashes on on my feet, 
and I didn't I didn't want to wash them away and I didn't want to put them on again so I just have the they're hanging on the hook uh, behind my door um, and I you know um, Hanlon James Hanlon the firefighter who's part of the team on the uh, 10th anniversary gave me a piece of uh, one of their fire trucks had been destroyed and they had pieces of it and he gave me a piece of it and I have it and it's framed and I, it's like I think that's one of the things that I value of what I have gotten to do which is I'm not part of history I'm an observer of history but I realize that from the Bible to now it's the recorders of history that keep society going and and they are the ones that take that bring the lessons and they're the ones that tell you do not forget what happened you cannot forget and um, I can I, I, I have things that I remember like a minute ago a minute ago mm. um, and most people walking on the planet don't get to do this and yeah. so I've thought it a privilege um, I've taken pay cuts <laughs> voluntary pay cuts <laughs> occasionally um, and I just I, I can't believe how old I am I can't believe well, you don't that look I. Old. You really, I, you, you seriously. I don't know if you've had plastic surgery. Nothing. But, no. But you no. look very young. I. And you I, have I think, a, I think it's because I'm short. Yes, I'm definitely. I once had some. I once had a guy. Actually, I was living in Washington, and I came back. I had gone for a run, and he was having a cup of coffee, and he sat down, and he said, "I, I really like you, but this isn't going to work." Ah. And I said, "Why?" And he said, "You're exhausting." to me <laughs> and, he, and I said you're you're bra you're breaking up with me because, because I'm 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 too energetic he goes yep <laughs> yep he said I don't think I could I don't think I can uh, keep up um, you must have a special husband then <laughs> no he just goes to bed uh, you know he's just he I exhaust him but um, my dogs are kind of curious but you know I, I just um, like when you do interviews like this or I give a speech I really stop and I think, oh my God, like, but I really can't believe I'm as old as well, I you're am. you're a living legend. Let's, yeah, let's a legend in my own mind. But, no, but, but, I mean, but, but you are, I mean, it's, it's so cool, all the things that you've done, and it's an inspiration for other storytellers, I think. Um, I feel and grateful. And also, I, I feel for, for people who are lucky enough to do what we do in terms of telling stories, just to see that you can have a career like yours more than four decades and still have that zest for the story and that drive for the story which takes us back to the time that you got Dan Rather off a plane and you said I have an idea <laughs> and so you get him off the plane and he says you better not you better know what up. the fuck you're doing yeah and, and so so we lie if Zerinsky can convince anchor Dan Rather to drive in a military convoy in the dark with landmines all around them, they will be the first, just behind Allied forces, and arrive before anyone else to anchor the news from inside the city. It's a big risk, but once again, Zarinsky is prepared to take it. We, within 30 minutes, we were in some Saudi motorcade. Again, I couldn't drive, 
Dan was in an, uh, a vehicle earlier on with the sat phones and everything else. And um, I was in a car. I think I got somebody from uh, the BBC to drive my car. And unfortunately, uh, we're driving into Kuwait where the Iraqis had already left. And crazy, but we got separated from the Saudi motorcade. There were two or three vehicles that had become separated because it was daylight on the clock but in reality it was pitch black because, because the oil of fires oil, yeah, so um, we kind of got up. out of the car and we're walking the vehicles the last 20 miles and you know there were tanks and bodies and the smell and it was pretty gaggable um, and I thought and I have no satellite phone with me I thought not a particularly good career move to lose the anchor in a war zone. No. And, um, and so we just <laughs> kept driving. And eventually it was like um, I thought I'd either died because I saw a great big white light. And I turned to the people in my vehicle. I said, I've either died. We've all died. Or that's a television light. And let's head toward the light. So we were like moths. We head toward the light. And my crew was brilliant. They had set up the satellite. Uh, New York was seeing us, and I had a manual little typewriter. I was very smart that on the way to Dharan, I knew there'd be no power. So I bought four old manual Olivetti's at the airport, because they still sold those little portable typewriters. Believe me, the New York Smart Times, I, yeah, I was. I could have rented them out. I'm going to make a note of that. That's oh, a good you, oh, yeah, yeah. You bought, bought those. I still have them. I have them all. They're under my couch in my office. Um, and I started, they said, we want to anchor everything from there. And Dan's kind of, we set up in a restaurant called Shrimpies mm. on the Corniche, on the water, and where the Iraqis had been like hours before. And there were these boxes, boxes and boxes. And somebody pried one open and they were, sur were surface-to-air missiles that they had, they just like got the hell out of town. God. There were tuna fish cans, like, like kind of warm candles that still looked like the wax was on them. So we anchored the evening news from Shrimpies that night and I thought, glad I made it. Like he would have been fine without me because there were plenty of people, but our techs were amazing. They said, yeah, we got a signal into New York. The sat phones are up. So I, I get in there and I just start typing copy and, you know. You knew what the fuck you were doing. Well, I, I was lucky. I don't know <laughs> that I was that smart. I was lucky that night yeah. at Shrimpy's. Um, yes, you one of my. You make your uh, own luck, Susan. Yeah, I, uh, you do make your own luck. You I, make your own luck. My other favorite uh, souvenir, like souvenir is actually a, a rocket propelled grenade launcher, which I brought back from the first Gulf War into this country. It was Kind you of did what? I brought a ro an RPG back <laughs> because. Uh, How did you know it was safe to bring back? Well, because it was just the weapon. It wasn't. Okay. It wasn't loaded. All right, Susan. Uh, I was going to yeah. say. Yeah. Well, we um, there was um, a South African cameraman named Chris Everson, and we went up in a helicopter, and we were taking pictures of the highway of death, and we landed the chopper because we nobody really knew. You know, that's when the Iraqis were heading back towards Baghdad, and. Um, it was kind of crazy because they had dumped all their weapons because they were bringing stereos and like yeah. curling irons back and and all these kind of things and um, it was pretty funny so we kind of grabbed a fair amount of weapons and when we got back to Dharam 
some people had been bringing live munitions and live grenades. So they were checking everybody's equipment. I happened to be traveling with like 200 pieces of gear because I had was carrying the gear of the crew that was still prisoner in Baghdad. So the guy finds me and he opens up and I had disassembled the RPG so it was in pieces. So he brings this tube and he brings me up to the joint information. It was called the jib. And the colonel who I had not seen since we left for Kuwait congratulated me on getting into Kuwait first. And I said, well, but I screwed the entire military pool. He goes, a win is a win. So he, I said, it's just the tube. I didn't tell him I had the rest of the gun. And he said, well, what else do you have? I said, why? He said, well, what else do you have? I said, what do you want? <laughs> and he said, do you have any AK-47s? I said, mm, yeah. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> you want one? I, got, I gave him two AK-47s and I, I kept the RPG which sits in my living room by my fireplace, as my husband says, like we really need a conversation piece. Yeah, exactly. It, you know, one of the things I love about you is that y you, you refuse to say no to things and-, and uh, Oh yes, that's and, my favorite saying. It, and I love this quote from you, you say, no is hello. No is the beginning of any conversation. I get raw energy from negativity. It's like the Iron Man challenge for me. If I work hard enough, I can inspire the people working with me. I can turn that no into a yes. Uh, that's how I feel. I mean, I you know, you just you just feel like can't you just convince somebody to yeah. do something that it's in their best interests? Ninety nine percent of the time, you can. Yeah. You can. Yeah, you have that ability. Yeah. No, to it's turn, it, to it, turn it around. You could say no. You could say no to me 50 times. I'm still going to call you on Monday with an idea. Yeah, well, no. Or, or somebody comes to you with a terrible idea, and you don't want to react immediately. And I have what I call my VNE, my value-neutral expression. So somebody comes in, the idea is hateful. And you just kind of say, that, I have never thought of that before. That's really, I, I don't know, that's really interesting. Mm. I, should, I need to think about that. Or if I come away. to you with an idea and I see that, that I, yeah. I, I know, I, I, I know I what's react. going on. I'm like a blind date. I mean, my, my favorite Noah's Hello story was actually in uh, Russia with Boris Yeltsin. And we were doing a documentary called Seven Days in May. And Diane Sawyer was working at CBS in those days. And she was the, the whole purpose was to get Yeltsin to say yes to do an interview. And um, like we were getting nothing, you know, and... It was in the in the Kremlin. It was this gigantic office. It was just gorgeous. And then I, I you know, he's uh, was kind of a little bit of an alcoholic, a little lustful kind a of guy. Bit, yeah, I heard he yeah. liked to drink a lot. And uh, so I go in the, my backpack and I pull out this very sexy picture of Diane. And I walk to his desk and I slam it on his desk and I said, "That's who's going to do the interview." And you know, the guy, the the he starts to flush and he looks and he goes, "Like I've been there like an more than an hour," and he says, "Oh." Konyeshnya means certainly. He goes, Konyeshnya, da, interview. I go, oh, shit. Why didn't, why didn't I come with the picture on my, like, like taped to my sweater? You Would know? it be so much easier? Yeah, right. Would have got you later. there. Have you ever thought about being on camera? I mean, you're so telegenic. I, I never, I never, ever, ever thought about the role in front of the camera. However, it was very interesting. I, I ended up. I do stuff on camera. Yeah. I promote the show. I, you know, you're go interactive on yeah, Twitter. I'm very, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all of that. You are an um, extrovert. I am. Um, 
I'm an introverted extrovert. Um, I do like walking into a room and like kind of feeling yep. like cool, you know, N not cool, but like excited by the room. Well, you do light up a room. <laughs> I've been in rooms. Wait, wait, that don't say that because we say that about everybody who was murdered on my show. Oh, they okay. could light up a room. <laughs> um, I, there was a couple of times I did uh, and something with the affiliates, like one of those affiliate kind of blitz uh, projects, and I can't even remember what it was for. And somebody called me and they said, you know, you sh you, did you ever think about like, like doing hosting and stuff? I said, absolutely not. But I really enjoy being on television. Like I, I like I can it. feel you're, it. I can. I can. The, it's your story sense. You're very good at structuring the story, getting that beginning, middle, and end to the story, you know, which is so crucial. It, it was funny. It wasn't until that one round robin, this that that satellite tour, that somebody came down. And they said, "Wow, that was like your energy kind of jumps through the screen." And I said, "Is that good or bad?" Susan, I really appreciate you sharing so many of your stories and um, generally end with a few questions uh, two questions first one if you could take a road trip with anybody dead or alive and mm. you could have three companions in the car with you who would you take with you that's an awesome question I think I, I, if I could take a road trip, I would want Nelson Mandela driving. Okay. <laughs> and I would want in the car Saddam Hussein and Muammar Gaddafi, modern leaders of terror with a man who fought his whole life for peace and succeeded. Is that why you put him in the driver's yes. seat? Yes. And where are you sitting? In the front or the back? I'm in the back between Gaddafi and Saddam. Ah. What a trip. Man. Wonder who'd bring the dates and the fruit. <laughs> <laughs> and then your last day on Earth, Susan, if you could design your last day any way you wanted wow well there's a there's a clause though i'd have to find out i'd have to know ahead of time is there heaven okay I, I, okay yeah. if 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 there was no heaven i would uh want my family around me and want to know that they were okay with how I lived my life. Mm. And that things I maybe didn't do that they understood, but they knew that I was doing the best I could at that moment. Wonderful. That could be a cryable question. Yeah, absolutely. Well, some people get faced with that and yeah it's an interesting one makes you think about what's really important i guess thank you
my, yeah. my small my small cold hands, right? Yeah. <laughs> you can watch this podcast online at philcogan.com. And let me know what's on your bucket list. You never know, you might be my next guest. Don't forget, ticket before you kick it. Thank you.